Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Father, that's our heart and our desire this morning. It's more of Jesus and less of ourselves. God, as we step into your word now, as we worship you through your word, we're grateful for the blessing of worshiping you through song that prepares our heart, that prepares our mind, that sets our spirit in the right posture, in the right place to hear your word, to be transformed, to be molded and shaped to be more like Jesus. God, give us more of him as we see him in our text, as we see him in your word. God, may we praise, may we make him big in all of our lives and everything that we do. May it always be about Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Man, it is so good to be with you guys. Let me say welcome to all of you joining us online this morning as we are continuing in our series in 1 Peter, Stand Firm. We are almost done. We have one more week after today. If you have a Bible and you want to join me in 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to wrap up chapter 4 this morning, and then next week we're going to look at chapter 5. So let me start this morning with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, found in his book, The Problem of Pain, and I think uh, we'll be able to see the connection once we kind of get into the text that Peter has for us this morning. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, I am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday or a new book when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease, or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us all with destruction sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first, I am overwhelmed, and all my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps by God's grace I succeed and for a day or two become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right sources. But the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. I can relate. You? We so easily forget the promises of God when we are going through the trials and the troubles and the aches and the pains of life. And then when the promises, uh, the problems and the challenges are over, those, those promises are gone too, right? It isn't long before we return to the old patterns of thinking. 
Where the promises and the, and, the, and the grace that we were holding on to that we finally grabbed hold of, like he talks about here in this, in this quote, that he finally got himself back to that place where he should be, but then the problem dissipates or the challenge goes away or the ache goes away, and now all of a sudden he goes back to the same pattern of thinking that he was before that. Now remember Peter's writing to Christians who faced desperate circumstances. They faced suffering And he comes back here in this text to the theme of hope. He's, again, wanting them to to be encouraged. He wants them to find hope in hurtful times. Not just to survive those times, but but to hopefully thrive in those times for God's glory. For the glory of King Jesus. I think this text that we're going to look at in verses 12 through 19, I think it's as radical as Christianity gets. I've heard other commentators and pastors and theologians say the same thing. I think this is, this is radi- a radical text. This is Christianity you know, on, on steroids, if you will. This is what it is about. I think, I, I think it may be the most important summary of what God is doing in us and through us that we find within Peter's first letter here. God has called us to a new normal. A normal that doesn't focus on the kind of comfort and ease that we you know, look for in life that we would want it to be if we were on the throne, if we were the sovereign one. This text is deep. It's full. It opens incredible doors to the the wide range, the expansiveness of the radical difference that a Christian worldview has where God is really at the center, that his plan is really at the center, that his grace really is our hope. And so I want to jump into this text, and I want to give us just a few thoughts as we kind of Look at, at the verse and talk a little bit, and we'll look at the verse and talk a little bit. And so here's your first thought. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Peter starts out in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. This might be my favorite verse in 1 Peter. It's so, it's, this text isn't hard really to, to understand, but it's super hard to kind of live out, okay? And this might be my favorite verse in, in 1 Peter because it just kind of sums it up. This, this is where we see the, the Christian world, the, the new normal, right? The, meaning that if we approach difficulty and hardship and aches and pains, whether they're small ones or big ones, whether they're small little things or they're tragic and catastrophic, with an attitude, well, that's just weird or that's out of the ordinary, then we're not thinking in the biblical way about ourselves, about God, about, about what is going on in the right now. Let me point out, though, real quick, I love Peter in the way he addresses his readers as he addresses us. He calls them beloved, right? The very first thing he says to them, beloved. He, he does this only one other time. One other time, back in chapter 2, verse 11. And both there and here, it signals that he is about to say something pretty hard. Pretty challenging. He knows what he's going to say is going to be difficult to hear, to live out. Again, not necessarily complicated, but hard to perform, to obey. And he wants them to know, as he wants us to know, reminds us here that in his teaching that he cares for us. He loves us. Beloved. This is is Peter being pastoral, right? 
See, the tone and the approach to when we say things to others, when we share things with others, is important. And this is Peter being passed. This is how to make disciples, right? This is how we make disciples. To be faithful in gospel ministry, uh, to, be faithful, to be a faithful Christian friend. Here are the core elements. Peter has some challenging things to teach us, which is necessary. So what does he do? He speaks the truth. He speaks those things, but he does it with love. Beloved, he says to them, I have some hard things to say to you, but I want you to know that I care for you. I love you deeply. So why is suffering presented as a new normal? Let me give you a couple thoughts here. One is simple, and you know this. We live in a fallen, broken world, right? And it's not by accident that we're here, right? God, God has a plan and a place for us to live in this particular point of time in, in, the, in the time that we've been given, in the time that he has for us here. This is not by accident. And we will not escape the brokenness and the fallenness of the world. In fact, we are here to live in it, in the harsh reality of it, to be a light for him and his glory that he may continue to work in us and through us. Secondly, though, is because we identify with Jesus. This new normal comes when we identify with Jesus. We have more of Jesus and less of ourselves. The more we identify, Jesus told us in, in John 15, he said, listen, the world hates me, so it's going to hate you. If you identify with me, if you are, if you are with me, if I'm with you, if we are together, if we are one, as the world hates me, it's going to hate you. If we stand for Christ, if we step out, and we step out of the whole idea that, you know, this is, you know, I, I'm, the, I'm the ruler, I'm the king of my life, I, it's my way or the highway type of living. If we step out of that and we live, we live against that or a, 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 the other direction of that, against the grain, right, swim upstream to that, our lives then will be offensive to people who are around us, who live that way. And, and we'll seem different as we talk about a higher God, a higher law, a higher absolute, a higher master, an eternal hope. Those kinds of things. And you might have relate, you can relate to this because that's you at your work. People know you as the Christian. That's you in your school or at your university. People know you. You're the Christian. You're the one who walks with Jesus. Those kinds of things. And they don't, they don't know you because they like what you're doing. They know you because they are offended by the way you live your life. It's another reason. That's another reason why this is a new norm. Suffering is this new normal for us. And then thirdly, God intends to use difficulty, suffering to promote his work, to continue his work of grace in us. And we're going to see this in our text. Those words, fiery trial and test, immediately should make us think of what Peter talked about in, first, in chapter 1, in verses 6 and 7. He talked about the same thing, this fiery trial that will refine us, right? It will refine us the fact that God uses these difficulties of life to refine us. One commentator uh, used this understanding. He said that fiery trial is meant to test you, not test in terms of an exam, but test in terms of a tempering of metal. And so I had to look that up. I mean, I love the show Forged in Fire. Anybody watch that show, Forged in Fire, where they make swords and knives and all kinds of cool stuff? And they're, and they're blacksmiths, and they make this stuff. And I, I've watched that show, but I didn't fully understand it. But I looked up tempering of metal. It's a process of improving the characteristics of a metal, especially steel, by heating it to a high temperature, though below the melting point, then cooling it, usually in air. The process has the effect of toughening, strengthening by lessening brittleness and reducing internal stresses. So God uses this not to melt us, not to destroy us or to crush us, but to refine us, to strengthen us, to toughen us, 
and reduce the internal cracks. I've heard people say, though, in the midst of trouble and trial and hardship, testing, that they're not sure God's faithful anymore or even pays attention. I want you to know this. Suffering is not a sign of God's unfaithfulness. It's not a sign of God's inattention. You're not forgotten in your suffering. It's a sign of your inclusion. Sign of your inclusion in his great work. What is his great work? His redemptive plan for, for people, for all people. It's a sign of the operation of his grace, right? It's transforming love. And so Peter would say to you, don't be surprised. Don't, don't think of this as strange that it's happening Whenever we go through the hurts and the aches and the pains of this world, Peter wants us to know, don't let it throw you. Don't let it throw you. Don't, don't get caught off guard. You know what C.S. Lewis was talking about? Don't, don't let it catch you off guard to where you've got to crawl your way or you climb your way back into the grace where you should have been focused and, and centered to begin with. Don't let it catch you off guard. Don't be surprised by this. It's hard for us, right? It's hard for us because we live in this constant pursuit of happiness. We live in a constant pursuit of happiness, always wanting to find that, that place of happiness. That's what Lewis was talking about with the things that he was, uh, the toys, right? So when the suffering comes, it throws us because we're trying to pursue that happiness. And then it throws us and it surprises. Peter says, don't do that. What Peter is saying is have perspective. Have some perspective. Stop. Realize you have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to display the glory of God in this moment through this pain, through this suffering. It doesn't mean we can't cry. It doesn't mean we can't be disappointed. But at some point, we should ask the question of perspective. How can I give God glory in the middle of this? How can that be? I've heard this several times about God's glory. God, to give God glory means to make God bigger. To make God bigger. Technically, we can't, right? But you could say it's like a telescope. Telescope brings, telescopes bring faraway things into clear view, right? So that we are left in awe and wonder if you've ever used a telescope to look out into space and planets and stars. I think Peter's saying your suffering can become like a telescope to bring a faraway God into clear view so that others, including yourself, are in awe of him. Let's keep going. Here's a second, second little key thought. Rejoice. Look at verses 13 and 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's a paradox, right? feels like a paradox. Peter, you want me to rejoice in tears, rejoice in hurts, rejoice in pain. And the key word here is insofar. Insofar. That's the important key word for us. A Christian can go through suffering and not use them well. Your suffering, Peter is saying, can become the occasion of coming to know Christ better or deepening our fellowship with Jesus or knowing more of Him and less of ourselves. And so insofar... As you use your suffering to press toward Christ and come to know more of Him, there then can be joy. You can rejoice 
in that. It's perspective, right? It's attitude. When my perspective is right, now my attitude is right. And what now? I am positioned then to do what Peter says. And Peter says, rejoice. Which again, it feels like a paradox. But when you see it put together, you understand where he's leading us. And the word rejoice comes from the same family of words of grace, where we find the word grace. And I really reflect on the grace of God in my life. When you reflect on the grace of God in your life, even in the midst of suffering, when you take time to reflect on the grace of God, it provokes joy, deep, settled joy in life. And when that happens, we can become a beautiful witness to those around us Joy says, I will not be a servant to my circumstances. Again, can you cry? Sure. But even then, we can have tears of joy. Peter says, rejoice. I'll say this. If you can stand in in the middle of a moment of suffering and your heart is rejoicing, the grace of God has visited you. It's a good litmus test. The grace of God has come. Because we all know that that's not normal, right? That's not the normal way of us responding to difficulty and trial and hardship. So we ask the questions, what is it in this experience that I'm going through? What is it that God has given me, that he's given me the reason to rejoice? What is it? He's not saying that you rejoice because pain is something to be happy about. It's not wrong to feel the pain of trials, but Peter says there's a God behind it. Don't miss this. He's teaching us. There's a God behind that who is, who is doing a work. He's doing something that's worth rejoicing. And if in this moment all we get is the pain part, not the rejoicing part, then we're missing the beautiful thing that God is seeking to do in us. And he, and he uses the connection to Christ's sufferings, right? Christ's physical sufferings on earth was followed by glory. He suffered and then glory came. And that suffering and glory was what some say a down payment. It's a down payment that as you and I suffer in his name and for his sake, we will also receive the glory to follow. Paul would talk to us about this light momentary affliction. This light momentary affliction will give way to this beautiful, eternal joy and glory. I know it's hard to imagine, right? Isn't it? It's hard to imagine that there will be a day when you are experiencing such shocking and stunning and long-term glory that you'll look back on this moment of suffering or it will be hard for you to remember how great the pain was. And the weight of glory will overwhelm every moment of pain and rejection and tears and sorrow we've ever experienced. See, sometimes as, as Lewis would want us to do, and as he's done himself, as he talks about it in the Problem of Pain book, sometimes we've got we to gotta re-preach that to ourselves, that this glory that is to, co- is to come, because we believe in eternity and we believe every moment of suffering is marching us towards it, that there is a glory that will overcome and overwhelm any pain and tear and sorrow and grief that we've ever, ever experienced. The thing that makes heaven, heaven is face to face with Jesus. And that's what Peter's tying it to here. I've said that before. 
Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. It's the sight of his glorified wounds. Not just reunion with loved ones, which will be incredible. Not just the, the glorification of our bodies, which, which will be incredible. Not just the release from pain and sorrow. Not just from the, the, the no more te- Not just from those things. All of these things are promised to us. But none of those things in themselves will, will fill us for the everlasting, will fuel the everlasting joy that we will experience from the sight of Jesus, his lovely face, nearness to him as he sits on his throne. We'll be seeing Jesus, communion with Jesus will make our hearts full of joy when that comes. But until then, until then, Peter says, joy in the midst of sorrow. Rejoice, not because of sorrow, but through sorrow. Train us to cling to Christ, to find our joys not in the comforts of this world, but in our Savior, our Savior King Jesus. And in verse 14, he talks about, you know, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Luke records in Acts chapter 5, where the apostles are arrested and they're forbidden to preach the gospel. But when they are released in Acts 5.41, it tells us when they left the presence of the council, when they were released from that, they did so rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name, for the name of Jesus Christ. They were full of joy that they could share in the sufferings of Christ. And I think Peter here in verse 14 is telling us part of the reason why they are so blessed Because they know themselves to be blessed for suffering for Jesus' sake and being insulted for his cause. Peter says you are blessed if you suffer insult for Christ because it is a mark. It is an evidence that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Listen, others seeing Jesus in us and through us, whether in in praise or in insult, is a great compliment. It's a great compliment. Again, give, give me Jesus, right? In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God shows his glory through cracked pots. It's those cracks in our strength. It's those cracks in our wisdom and our righteousness reveal it's not us, right? I mean, I've talked to some of you before. You've talked to me. You know this isn't me. This is the Spirit of God. Right? I mean, it's not us, it's God, right? It's His righteousness reveals it's not us, it's the Lord. It's the glory of Christ that's being seen. So we rejoice. Let's keep going, verse 15 and 16. Purity in our suffering. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Two thoughts as Peter speaks to the contrast of suffering, Right? On being that we shouldn't call the consequence of wrong actions, persecution, or suffering. If you do something wrong and you experience a consequence for that, that's not something that you can call persecution or suffering. That is the the timeless principle, biblical principle of, of reaping what you sow. Right? This is what we deserve. Second, though, I think, and probably more important, I think Peter is showing that he understands how our heart works. He understands how our heart works, that moments of suffering are often moments of spiritual vulnerability. That, that in that moment, we, ha- we are vulnerable 
to, to decision-making. We are vulnerable to next steps, all of those things that there may be moments where we're tempted to wonder if our obedience is even worth it because of the suffering we're experiencing. So Peter's trying to tell us, he's trying to say, keep your, keep your purity within your suffering. We have a great ability to trouble our own trouble. Your moment of suffering is made worse because you get angry. And in your anger, you mistreat the people who would be there to support and love you. Guilty. Or your suffering tempts you to doubt God. It's probably the most prominent one. And you don't run to, to the one that you doubt. You don't run to someone that you doubt. You don't run to a God that you doubt, right? And your trouble, you, you trouble your own trouble in that moment. Peter's calling us to a higher standard. He's calling us to holiness. It's God-honoring life no matter what I'm experiencing. Difficulty does not change the call. So the question is, are we committed to a life that pleases Jesus no matter what? Does our obedience weaken in moments of difficulty and suffering? When we're going through trial, do we find it hard to read and pray? Do we wonder if it's worth coming to church or worship services to sit under the fountain of the Holy Spirit? Peter is trying to tell us, hey, keep your suffering pure. Don't, don't lean away from God. Lean into him and the things of God and the word of God and the praise of God and the worship of God. And remember, Peter knows this principle well, right? This is something Peter can truly relate to. Remember, in the moment of trial in his own life, when Jesus was arrested, he denied Jesus for the, for the fear of the persecution. And that was his trial, right? That was, that was the refining that God was going to use later in his life to let him be a leader within the early church and then to write for us that we might be transformed by what God writes through him. Peter is no stranger to this principle. This moment of obedience, he faltered. When he was supposed to stand on the rock, he stumbled. He understands to keep our suffering pure, right? Verse 16 says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He's determined to remind people that he's ministering to where they are to get their identity. Where is your identity found? Where... They are to get their purpose, where we are to get our meaning, where we are to get our inner sense of well-being. It's found in Christ. He's reminding them that the only stable place for any of that is from God. To think that I've been accepted by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I don't, I, I, then, then I don't have to go out shopping for identity, right? Peter says, but, but let him glorify God in that name. That suffering actually reinforces my identity. Right? I've taken his name. It's now my name because we are in the same family. I'm a Christian, and I glory in my identity. Right? I glory in that name. All the affection and all the respect and, and all the praise of human beings could, could not even come close to competing with the deep joy that I have in being included in the family of King Jesus. I mean, Paul would say in Romans 1.16, don't be... Ashamed, be unashamed of the gospel. And finally, the last part of this text, we have to trust the creator. Look at verses 17 to 19. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, the, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if righteousness is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word that's used in this passage for judgment is not, not really the word for condemnation. 
he's talking, when he talks about the family of God, he's, he's talking more about the word discipline, which we've mentioned already. See, a holy God, a holy God is not satisfied for continued sin and uncleanness within our lives and our hearts, right? Which he can't be. And it might seem a little surprising up to this point because Peter has been talking about us suffering from the perspective of our faith and our life in Christ. But now, he kind of switches gears, doesn't he? He takes a moment to say, listen, God will discipline us. And this is a good work. This is, not a, this, is not a, this is a good work, right? Because our life is to be made holy. And he is the one who has taken on the role of bringing that to be and bringing about holiness to the point of completion for us. Right? So discipline through fiery trials that refine us, that sanctify us, and help us become more godly. They help us hate worldliness and sin that remains in our hearts and become more like Jesus, like we just sang about, right? So that we may offer sacrifices of praise, that we might live lives consecrated to his service. That is a way of pleasing him and glorifying, making him bigger, right? Praising him. God doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste anything. Good or bad, he doesn't waste it. He uses all things to bring about his work to completion. And notice what Peter says in verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He says, listen, if people who have been made righteous by Christ still are needing that discipline of God in order that they might become actually righteous, eternally if they are scarcely saved what what in the world is the hope for the ungodly what a powerful picture this is of how deep our need of god's continued grace right our need of his rescue our ongoing need of his discipline and i said this weeks ago peter's letter is evangelistic in our suffering it's evangelistic in its theme of suffering he takes a moment here, I think, at the end of chapter 4 to remind us. I don't think this is just so we can be understanding that we need a continued work of God's grace on a daily basis. But I think he's also taking a moment to remind us to, to, to think about those who aren't saved. The ungodly. Think about those who are far from God. And that, that it would motivate us and that it would actually stir us, not just to always be inward focused on the stuff that we're going through, but also to be outward focused on those who don't even have a hope of being refined by the fire, but will be consumed by the fire. That we would look at them and we would live our lives as we walk home to Jesus, continuing to testify and witness through our suffering so that others might come and find that same rescue. And finally, we think about what he says in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is it. Like, I could have just started here and given you five minutes, and you guys could have already been home. But that wouldn't have been any fun. This is it. This is the posture. This is the posture in these situations of suffering. This is, this is where Peter kind of comes to this loud crescendo moment, right? That we entrust that's the key word, that you trust. You trust the creator. You trust. This word means to turn over for safekeeping. It's actually what we do when we make a bank deposit. We're not worried about what's going to happen. When you go make a bank deposit, you're not, you're not worried about, like you don't go out and then run back in and go, is it still there? 
You still got it? Maybe you do. I don't know. <laughs> Just a check. Or to play a joke on a teller. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. But when you make that deposit, you trust, right? You're not worried about what's going to happen. We're not frantically checking to see if it's there all the time. No, we, we turn it over and we walk away. No, it's in safekeeping. This is, this is the idea around what Peter is saying. Listen, we will entrust our souls to what? A faithful creator while doing good. Your creator, your savior is your creator and your creator is your savior. The one who holds the world together. One who holds us by His grace. One who owns all things and has the power to supply all that we need. That we need while we're going through what we're going through. He is our faithful creator. So the nervousness, the anxiety that often comes in our minds when we're facing those times of suffering, pain, ache. When we question, will I make it through? Will we make it? What, what, what will we... What will we do? What are we going to do? Will we have what it takes to get through this? How will this turn out? What's going to happen next? And Peter says, listen, in this moment, it's very important, very important not to forget that your hope is not figuring it all out and trying to rest in your own understanding. Rather, your hope is in one thing, your creator, savior, who holds all things in his hands who rules all things by his power, who has promised to supply everything that you need. So only Jesus Christ is that refuge. Have you come to take refuge in him? Let's pray. Father, we know that in the middle of trial and suffering and pain and heartache and difficulty, that we're not alone. That Jesus is our refuge. That he is the place that we put all of our trust, and not just our trust, but ourselves. We place ourselves with him because we're not forgotten. We're not by ourselves. We're not singled out. We're never alone because he's with us. And God, for those who don't, don't have that hope and assurance that he is with them, may they respond to the invitation to know him, to believe in Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, to confess and come home, to take the trust that they've built up on themselves and place it on Him, knowing that it is an eternal, secure trust that's steadfast and faithful that will never falter, never waver, and never crumble. God, may you draw people home to you today. And those that are home and walking with you, God, may we recognize that we're not alone. In the middle of a fiery trial, in the middle of a testing, that we're not alone. You're not, you're not unattentive. You're not gone, that you are with us because there's always another in the fire with us. Jesus, give us more of him and less of ourselves. We pray in his name. Amen.